Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we meander through this week's tech news. We're going to talk about highlights from VMware Explorer, new SEC rules on security disclosures, why 5G hasn't been the money train that telcos hoped for, and some very good financial results from Cisco and NVIDIA. Uh, we don't have any ads today, but do stay tuned after the news for sponsored Tech Bytes podcast. We're talking about monitoring network and application performance. Our sponsor is Catchpoint, and instead of talking to Catchpoint, they've sent a customer to talk about how this customer is using Catchpoint in production, including things like real-time BGP monitoring and Catchpoint's global observability network. Uh, so stick around for that. It's always easy to forget when you, if you get too product-centric, you start, you stop thinking about the fact that the network isn't necessarily just one thing. Like if you think about the monitoring that you get in your SD-WAN packages these days, it's great monitoring and it's built in. But then you f you forget that there's other parts of your network that aren't SD-WAN, uh -huh. campuses and so forth. Uh -huh. And so having tools that spread across not just the SD-WAN, but across everything, multi-vendor everywhere, may be a better solution than relying on a specific niche point monitoring solution if you make if that makes sense right yes and and that's basically what we're talking about when we talk to sunny shah from stackpath who is uh you know working with catchpoint to use their product so it's, it's an interesting story yeah let's stick around all right let's dive into the, some news uh, vmware announced a new private ai offering at vmware explorer last week vmware's private ai offering provides infrastructure and training models that can run in the public cloud on-prem or at edge locations the offering will run on vmware's cloud foundation and use hardware and software from NVIDIA plus infrastructure from Dell, HPE, and Lenovo. Wow, who would have thought it, Drew? What a <laughs> surprise. <laughs> uh, sorry to be a little bit cynical, but I mean, the, the there's just a number of articles this week uh, around the business press, not the technology press, but the business press, which I keep an eye on. And uh, there's a couple of CEOs come out this week and said, well, we have to talk about AI somewhere. You know, when pressed, they say, well, we have to talk about AI somewhere because if we don't, our share price won't pop. And so we've got all of these companies out here talking about AI and bringing hype around it when quite a lot of it is nothing. It's just because the share market wants to see that every one of their investments also has an AI strategy because they've collectively decided that AI is going to be a thing. And it reminds me of off-prem cloud back in the day when that first emerged from, first started to build up momentum. And here we are you know, 10 years later, and it's only taken less than 20% of the market, only 10% by some measures. Um, it's very useful. It's very powerful. It's got great features, but it hasn't exactly revolutionized our lives, Drew, right? So Yeah, so I do feel like I expect AI is going to be the new, we're going cloud native uh, in the executive suite. So mm -hmm. a big rush to adopt a hype technology. I think that's in some ways more driven by fear of missing out than thoughtful business decisions. Uh, mm -hmm. VMware is now positioning itself to cash in, which is what you would expect technology companies to do. Uh, VMware says, quote, the turnkey offering will provide customers with the accelerated computing infrastructure and cloud infrastructure software they need to customize models and run generative AI applications, including intelligent chatbots, assistance, search, and summarization. Uh, like public cloud, I think, you know, on paper, this sounds like a good thing, but mm. um, there's, there are issues in public cloud that folks are, you know, just realizing now as they sort of get into it. And I think a major issue that's going to emerge on the generative AI side is, can you trust this output? Uh, so <laughs> yeah. it's nice that they'll build you some infrastructure and a model, but there has to be a lot of effort around uh, things like data cleaning, data labeling, and so on. Because even more though we're talking about AI, in fact, it's even more important when we're talking about AI, garbage in, garbage out. So. Yeah. Well, I think it's more complicated than that. I think off-prem cloud is going to be very useful at this stage for huge AI, right? So if you're... McKinsey and you want to anal analyze all of your consulting in a market vertical to be mm -hmm. able to use an AI to support your consulting in that market, right? So to leverage sure. all your existing. 
well, that's a big company doing a big thing. And for them to go out and and decide how much infrastructure they need to run this, you know, probably very large model is very difficult. Are they going to spend, what, 500 million, 200 million, 150 million? They don't know. So it makes sense for them to go into the cloud and run these models. But I think for many enterprises, it's going to make more sense to do AI on-prem where their data is, because otherwise you have to extract all your data, move it into the cloud, and then, as you say, clean it, you know, get it ready, push it in, do a run in the model. And then once you've got the results, what do you do? Do you want to delete that data or you might want to run the model again? So now you're on the hook for this massive cost, right. but you've already got the data stored on-prem. Uh, you know, there's so much. And, you know, do we really know what we're doing this for? You know, or are we just toying around? And I mean, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we looked at Dell announced that it had a series of desktops, uh, which had the AI chipsets integrated. And I uh-huh. suspect there's going to be a big gap emerging over time between what I think of as big AI, so chat GPT and Llama and LLMs and image generators, and what I think we'll see, which is probably more like uh, small AI, if you like, or targeted AI. I'll come up with a better name for it eventually, but you know, um, <laughs> if you think of what Juniper's done with Mist, for example, for the last five years, five plus years, that's right. a very, much- Very targeted. Yes. So they might use an LLM, which is big AI, but their inference and model generation is much more targeted and uses a much smaller. Do they need to be in a cloud to run that? Maybe, maybe not, right? You know, maybe you could just put a half a dozen, you know, servers in a rack with some AI processes, have a fixed cost and know where you are. And, and if it takes the difference between, you know, two days and five days to do the inference task, well, so be it. You know, maybe the world doesn't end. Right. right. Uh, sure. So, yeah. Sure. So I also think VMware is tapping into concerns that companies might have about handing over data to a third party to do modeling and then seeing that data accidentally leak or be exposed in some way. So by keeping it mm. private in-house, uh, they they alleviate that issue. Yeah, I think that is part of the problem. Um, keep in mind that Oracle is actually one of the biggest purchases of NVIDIA uh, AI GPUs at this particular point in time. I think the rumors floating around suggest they bought up to a billion dollars worth of these AI processes um, to be able to, so that customers can do stuff on the Oracle cloud. They, mm-hmm. My guess mm-hmm. there is that Oracle's done a, a sort of a, we're going to spend up big so we can corner the market on this and then go to customers and say, well, we've got capacity. Why don't you come to us? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of a try it, maybe, you'll, you know, get you in through the door, maybe you'll stay sort of a deal, you know, a loss leader sort of a thing. But um my guess is is that you know that second idea is where I think VMware is aiming at. Uh, it makes more sense. So what's happening here is they're partnering with NVIDIA. Really, there's only two companies making AI GPUs at this point in time. Uh, one is NVIDIA, of course, and the other is AMD. AMD seems to have not really leveraged itself forward. It hasn't. It's been so focused on just producing silicon that they don't have the software layer. And of course, NVIDIA has been investing very, very big in software that wraps around their hardware. Right, they're SDKs, yeah. Yeah, they're SDKs, and they've built this moat. So it's not like you can just go out and get an AMD <laughs> GPU and just run the open source software that NVIDIA is giving away underneath because it's customized for their hardware. So NVIDIA's got a, an enormous lead out there at the moment, and it's also clear that NVIDIA is, is fracturing the market. And what I mean by that is they want to don't want to be beholden making AI GPU chips and just selling them to a limited number of customers. They don't want... Um, you know, AWS to be the sole place to go where they're, sure. you know, so they want to be able to say, no, 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 we want um, small AI. We want to be able to put it in handsets. We want to be able to put it in enterprise data centers. 
And so they're going to partner with everybody. They're partnering with Dell. They're partnering with Cisco. They're partnering with VMware. So this announcement is, sure, okay, great. VMware's got a solution, probably more comprehensive than what you'd see from others because they're going to have to use some, you're going to need some sort of system to schedule the software to run. And uh, VMware's private AI foundation will probably lead you into a set of VMware software licenses that are blessed by NVIDIA. And at some point, you'll know. So they're talking here about the VMware Private AI Foundation with NVIDIA will be supported by Dell Technologies, HP, and Lenovo. So what that means is, of course, you'll be able to go and find blessed hardware that is certified to be compliant or whatever. I mean, what compliance needs to be done is, you know, still beyond me why you have to have these certified solutions. Then, And you'll be able to go and buy, you know, something off the shelf, a rack of AI, two racks of AI, from right. Dell with the thing with Nvidia's blessing and boom off you go. So I think that's right. the dream. Um, where how long this takes? I mean, is this here today? It's a little hard to tell. Maybe yeah, soon? hard to tell from the announcement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but definitely VMware putting its stake in the ground uh, around AI and calling it private AI. I think is frankly a good position, a smart positioning. Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea. But I mean, there's things you can do here. Once you've got the hardware, then you can start to, like they've partnered with Hugging Face to be able to do to use their tools for generative AI, right? which is a very popular version. Uh, it's a code assistant, right? So it can help you to d- dynamically generate code. So Hugging Face is kind of well known for that. VMware's got announcements with a couple of others and they've got some, uh, the presentation on it was a bit weak. I felt that it was clear that some of this had been rushed through. What Raghu Ragaram was saying felt a little un- like it wasn't well developed or they didn't really understand uh, where it's going, but we'll see. I mean, let's see how it goes. Uh, VMware also announced NSX Plus. This is a new version of its NSX virtualized data center networking software. NSX Plus is a cloud-delivered option that can run in multiple public clouds as well as on-prem. And I think the goal is to provide that sort of unified network operations, security features, and load balancing in multi-cloud environments. So instead of having to use the... Uh, networking primitives in uh, AWS, Azure, and Google, et cetera, you just use uh, NSX instead across all of them, and then they'll handle mm. the, the, the back-end stuff for you. Yeah, it's a, well, I think it's a little more comprehensive than that. What they're actually doing is, you know, that, that concept of an AWS VPC, virtual private cloud sort of thing, that, mm-hmm. that this is a part of a network that you put stuff in. So you've got this multi-tenancy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what NSX is doing here, NSX Plus is saying, Remember Big Switch 10 years ago saying that what we're going to do is build AWS VPCs everywhere, wherever you want them, on-prem, whether you want it in AWS or whether you want it on-prem, we'll orchestrate it so that you can have these private networks. And NSX Plus is a sort of a realization that customers want VPCs everywhere. And so what they're going to do is say you can use NSX Plus to create VPCs on-prem in off-prem hosted, you know, if you're hosting a VMware instance somewhere in you know, an Equinix or one of those other companies that's doing that VMware. But you can also go into your favorite cloud provider who's doing VMware on cloud and create these VPCs in the same way. But you can also link directly to your GCP, Azure, AWS VPCs as well. And it will it'll pave them all over so that all you see is NSX. So exactly. all of the containers yep. and all the VMs. And basically, it's sort of a recognition that the model, that virtual private network model, if you will, that the clouds have been promoting because that's how they have to do if they're going to be multi-tenant is probably going to be the dominant way for virtual network going forward. And this is a step in that direction. Um, So they're talking about self-service provisioning of multi-tenant virtual networks through the UI or an API. This is what Big Switch was doing 
five to ten years ago. Um, and the but and remember too that the NSX agent that's in then in every VM now that once that's installed to do the networking, you can now add security features. You can add security policy. You can do IDS, IPS. You can do threat intelligence. You can do logging. Micro segmentation. Micro segmentation. Well, yeah. multi tenancy is the same. I mean, you get inherent multi-tenancy as a part of building a VPC. So it comes at a different layer rather than as uh, micro-segments in the overlay sort of thing. So this is a step forward for VMware. I do feel a bit late. Like this is something that when Big Switch came to the market with it five or six years ago, it was fairly obvious that that was, I think they were just a bit too early. But uh, Arista's got Big Switch. I wonder if they're going to be able to announce the same thing. And if Arista does announce it, can they compete against somebody like VMware for this? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think VMware is going to end up running into folks like Alkira uh, and Aviatrix, who are also making similar promises about having one operating environment across your multiple public clouds. Um, I also assume it being VMware that NSX Plus uh, to run your multi-cloud networking will be spendy. Yeah, it'll be uh, reassuringly expensive, you know, as they say. Reassuringly uh, no question. expensive. <laughs> In, uh, as it moves into Broadcom, Obviously, the the Broadcom announced, you know, as we spoke last week, Broadcom looks like it's ready to go. It's announced a tentative date, I believe, to be the 20th of October to complete 30th. the acquisition. 30th of October. Um, if not by the 30th of October, they feel strongly that it will happen by the end of 2023. Um, everybody still believes, as far as I know, from the, what I read, that Broadcom's acquisition of VM will result in significantly higher prices. So... You know, you might want to factor that into your planning if you're going to go down that path um, and, you know, or take an attitude of wait and see. Right. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it, we'll move on. Uh, this summer, the Security and Exchange Commission here in the U.S. announced new rules requiring public companies to disclose cybersecurity incidents. Uh, the goal is to give investors and shareholders timely information about security incidents and breaches by making disclosures mandatory. The SEC hopes that the information presented to investors will be, quote, consistent, comparable, and decision useful. This is according to a press release from the SEC. Uh, companies will have four days to report on security incidents that these companies regard as material. Uh, and to me, what qualifies as material is a little loose, but the general test is whether a reasonable investor would consider the incident important in making an investment decision. To understand the impact of this, Drew, I think you have to understand what the SEC does. And so its primary role is to protect investors from companies who fail to disclose sufficient information. So right, publicly traded companies, publicly yes. traded companies, yeah, to, and to some extent private. But then they believe that private investors are a different beast, and it's not their job to. Yeah, there are some some protections extended, but not a lot. So I think it's fair to say that you know SEC activity is an arm of the U.S. government, and most U.S. people are sort of in favor of the SEC as a general idea. Nobody's saying the the SEC is overbroad or overweening here. I think most. It's generally accepted that it's doing something that's useful. I think the language here is a bit loose, Drew, because the SEC likes to give itself some wiggle room and let this stuff evolve, right? But right. if you're a company at this stage, like companies are really frightened of the SEC because they have a lot of power to really impact companies. Like if you have to announce that the SEC is investigating you for a thing, your share price instantly takes a hit. And it's generally costly and, you know, requires everybody inside the organization because the SEC actually has real powers. Um, and so you sort of read into this and and I think that what they're going to do is, are you going to report every single thing? Like uh, I f Microsoft announces a significant patch, that means I'm vulnerable. Therefore, I have to announce that to the SEC. 
you know, or is it we've actually detected some sort of a breach, but there's no consequences? Do I announce? And uh, so what do companies do? Do they choose to say, I am only going to report significant breaches because that's probably with the intent of the law? But then if something goes wrong and somebody sues you for failing to disclose a small breach and then it becomes a big thing, then, you know, so is the SEC going to get deluged with <laughs> thousands per day, you know, or, or millions per day of duplicate things because it's just that everybody's just thinks, well, we'll report it and then at least we've reported it and off we go, right? I don't know. Which way do you think it'll go? A couple of things. One, I think uh, you, you have, I think, maybe an overestimated view of the power of the SEC. Well, the SEC does have regulatory controls. In, in my opinion, I think other people's opinions here in the United States, it's not necessarily toothless, but it's very much outgunned uh, by a lot of the public companies that it's supposed to regulate. Um, the very wealthy public companies have the, the lawyers and the time to, you know, uh, throw roadblocks up against SEC uh, issues. So I don't think it's quite as frightening as you make it out to be, but I'm glad to see it taking these steps because uh, in the documents we've got in the show notes here, the SEC is like saying essentially cyber attacks are increasing. Uh, it's affecting customers. It's affecting investors. It's affecting the public. Uh, and so more transparency is hopefully going to help mm -hmm. this. We'll see the fact that uh, the companies themselves get to decide what is material uh, makes me feel like there's that's a loophole big enough to drive a truck through. Um, and so I think there'll be a lot of lawyering around this. Yeah, and this is where the enforcement right. comes in, right? If they, right. if the company chooses not to deploy it and then it turns out to have a significant financial impact on the company, well, they can right. be sued, right? They can, yes. Yes. So yes. do they then report every single thing and flood the system with pointless... Well, like, yes, 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 right. Yeah, yeah there, are so, there are lots of ways to play this, uh, yeah. either under-report or over-report and just make it, mm. you know too much information that no one can actually parse out what's real. That's right. So, and yes. that's going to be the challenge because then you're going to have like companies reporting, I don't know, potentially thousands of vulnerabilities a day. Uh, and maybe that's not... not... <laughs> you just publish their vulnerability scans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Something like that. Um, a, couple of sub, so a couple of smaller things because this is actually quite a sophisticated concept and we're only really picking out one thing here. Um, the SEC noted in, its, um, in the document that we linked to the costs and adverse consequences of cybersecurity incidents to companies are increasing. Such costs include business interruption, lost revenue, ransom payments, remediation costs, liabilities to affected parties, cybersecurity protection costs, lost assets, litigation risks, and reputational damage. I've talked before about my general view that cyber insurance has a significant impact on how security, how cybersecurity plays out. And as uh -huh. cyber, the price of cyber, cyber insurance increases then you start to see the insurance industry going to the SEC and saying, we need more legal support to get these companies so that we can have cybersecurity taken. I actually would imagine that the cyber insurers were one of the key contributors to the bill in the background. Um, the second thing that I note is that the SEC calls out the support from the current government, and, and it's fairly possible to conclude from what's going on that some of this is related to geopolitics to improve the general business security against external actors. So, of course, China, Russia, North Korea, uh -huh. and so on, right? So if the SEC lifts the bar for cybersecurity, then that might contribute to a general awareness of US companies improving their position on cybersecurity so that in the event of some potential future conflict, the com you know, civilian businesses are better protected. Yes. Yeah. My, my ho I, I, I assume the SEC is hoping that the effect of this will be one more transparency for investors around security incidents because they believe there's underreporting, and two uh, that that will spur more vigilant uh, cybersecurity uh, in these publicly traded companies. Uh, the 
as we mentioned, there could be other effects instead of uh, implementing better cybersecurity, it'll just uh, hire more lawyers to argue about whether something was material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, yes and no. I think there needs to be more disclosure. Companies need to own up to it so that investors can then say, look, you're not spending enough on cybersecurity. I suspect this will make cybersecurity a much more serious issue. Like, you know, we used to joke about cybersecurity doesn't matter because there's no negative consequences. That's changing, has been for it a is. while. Cyber insurers have been raising the cost for cyber insurance because the cost of remediation, um, this is raising the bar a bit more. I think we'll just see more and more of this. And so it becomes more and more cost-effective to implement cyber insurance because the negative consequences are more substantial than they were before. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it, uh, we'll move on. Uh, Suse Linux, which is one of the companies planning to fork Red Hat Enterprise Linux, has announced that it's going private again after being a public company for just over two years. Uh, the company's major shareholder is pulling Suse from the Frankfurt Stock Exchange in a deal with a private equity firm. It's going to pay out about... 16 euros per share, uh, and Suse's board has approved the delisting. Uh, the board calls it a strategic opportunity that will allow the company to, quote, focus fully on its operational priorities and execution of its long-term strategy, end quote. <laughs> so we've done, a, over the last three shows, I think, we've talked about the, um, the concept of what open source looks like in 2023 and mm -hmm. maybe how it looks like in the future and the increasing commercialization around open source and potentially how the open source model that we traditionally know, the GPL, uh, you know, or the the other licenses, the very open licenses, maybe don't work so well in the modern era now that technology is much more financialized. And I think this is the evidence of that. The idea that SUSE, which is being bought by a company called Marcel Lux, Marcel Lux is a vehicle for a private equity firm called the EQT Group, which is a Swedish group headquartered in Luxembourg, who spends uh, have has a portfolio of technology companies that they invest in, um, that, that they are willing to buy out. They already own 80% of SUSE. They're now buying out the other 20-odd percent. Right. Uh, but interestingly, they're not. A, it's not a forced buyout. You don't, it's not that everybody has to give up. If the people want to retain any significant shareholders, want to retain their investment, they can retain it after the acquisition. So they're not buying it as in, you know, in terms of, but they already owned 80% of it, but they're taking the rest of it off the market. So it's no longer publicly listed and they don't have to, you know, post public notes about it to the, to the stock exchange. So. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, the, um, the company is going to pay an interim dividend to shareholders. It says it may borrow as much as 500 million euro to pay that dividend. Uh, so already we see the, the practice of uh, larding up companies with debt here. Um, I was curious, is, is, is Suse doing this because they're in financial difficulty? I looked at their 2020 uh, full year results. They mm. they seem to be doing okay. They had revenues of $655 million and, and pretty healthy profits. Uh, so this doesn't seem like it's a fiscal emergency. So I'm not really clear on why go private at this point. Yeah, not going to argue with you. Um, maybe there's an op they see an opportunity here with Red Hat. Red Hat is, you know, the acquisition by IBM wasn't overly popular and then the recent moves by IBM to close down Red Hat and drive it as much more of a sales generation tool for its uh, professional services business. There are other reasons, but that's, uh, that is what seems to be the opinion of most people I read is that Red Hat now becomes a sales lead generation tool for IBM's professional services business. Uh, this company must be looking at it and going like, there's an opportunity here. There must be people turning away from Red Hat. Can we capture some of that revenue? Uh, software subscription revenue models are very popular at this particular point in time. Mm -hmm. Suse mm -hmm. is a long-established, it's a well-known brand. It has partnerships with a lot of application stacks, a lot of companies who did not want to do business with Red Hat. 
There's data sovereignty issues because it is largely developed and maintained out of Europe. So there's an opportunity there for somebody who's willing to, you know, do some rather risky things with the business. Maybe they can't do that as a public business. So we'll see. Yeah, keep an eye on it. Uh, Greg, you've pulled together a variety of links on the failure of initiatives like network slicing to bring new riches to the telcos. Uh, and uh, in our show notes here, you've, you've titled it as Told You So, 5G Fails to Deliver. <laughs> I so feel a bit... <laughs> to do your dance. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's not often I get to be too smug and, and sort of say, I told you so. But there was a lot of links in the last, not just this week, but last week as well, where I see the RAN market is going to decline significantly, immediately, you know, um, Companies like Deloro were saying that there's going to be an infinite squillions of dollars on 5G ran through 20, to 2030. It's going to be the biggest thing ever. Then I started to see another analyst talking about the telcos, a sort of analyst saying 5G lessons to telcos haven't recognized. And then there was actually this article from the South Korea's biggest telco saying that 5G has failed to deliver. So not only is it the analyst saying this, not only are the you know the the market analysts saying revenues for 5G RAN is down what on what we expected, but the telcos are actually speaking up and saying 5G didn't deliver on what we wanted. And I sort of that made me go back to sort of go like, well, first of all, I went ha ha, told you so. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just want to be clear when when they're saying 5G hasn't delivered, it's not in terms of 5G performance as a technology. That's been fine. It's just a lack of demand for them being able to sell differentiated services on top of that 5G network. What they're actually saying is in is in, in various things is 5G was going to be revolutionized and it was supposed to revolutionize the user experience. Remember when it came out and everybody said, oh, customers are going to want to upgrade to 5G phones because it's going to give them more bandwidth and it's going to give them uh, some mystical properties of feeling <laughs> good about themselves because they're on 5G. They were never right. very clear on the value of 5G to the consumer. And I think consumers picked up on that, right? And when you look at the technology of 5G, and I, and I believe I've said this before, but I'll say it again today, my fundamental reading of 5G as a technology suite was that it was really about software enabling the infrastructure in the mobile phone tower. So when you see the pop with the you know the antennas on the top, up mm -hmm. until now, those radios have all been analog and with custom hardware appliances. And 5G was much more about replacing you know analog radio with software radio, using containers and VMs instead of custom hardware appliances. But more importantly, substantial new software to do automation and orchestration of all of the elements. Like there's 40 right. or 50 different software elements inside of a tower and even all the way down to software routers and hardware routers and all that that's all getting changed we're seeing changes from you know two meg uplinks to 10 meg to 100 meg to delivering dwdm you know with 100 gig lambdas out to the edge with using dwdm over ip and so the cost of operating towers if they hadn't have refreshed it would have gone dramatically up so the first thing they tried to do is, remember NFV, how network functions virtualization was going to revolutionize us? I do. They changed that for a long time, and then sort of the realization was that NFV wasn't going to do it. What they went, what NFV was, the value that everybody saw in NFV was this softwareization. <laughs> Excuse me for that, but, you know, this move to software instead of hardware. And NFV, which was supposed to be a set of APIs and rigid and hard, crunchy definitions of every function, didn't work. It was made much more sense to just say Kubernetes. So if we had have just got <laughs> Kubernetes instead of NFV, we probably would have been a lot better off and just said, here's containers, and then we'll just flexibly add and delete stuff as we need to. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the major mistake that the telcos made was that they put the business model that they generated was that customers would pay extra for 5G. They were going to say, right, 
here's 4G, but we're going to charge you an extra $20, $50 a month for 5G. And pitching 5G as a premium product around speed and wireless handoff, when really what it was going to do is just reduce the cost of operating the tower, that came out pretty quickly. Like, that was obvious. And customers didn't need it. I remember we were saying at the time, how much more bandwidth do you need when you can stream Netflix to your phone? Right. <laughs> yes. So, so right. <laughs> I, I think what we're seeing here is, you know, that the marketing cycle pulling back. I think also we're seeing the, the marketing cycle pulling back from private 5G as well. So there's been a lot of, you know, hype around private 5G and everybody's going to replace their Wi-Fi with, with private 5G. And I think people are starting to realize that, you know, the further you get into private 5G, you realize how complicated it is and r the software engine that runs it is an, an, an extremely complicated piece of software. You, you don't just put down a couple of wireless access points and boom, you've got a better Wi-Fi. That is not how it works at all. Um, there is definitely a place for private 5G, but I'm still not sure that the market is at scale. So how big does a market have to be to be sustainable? How many private 5G networks do there have to be in the world to be viable for it to continue? We know that with 3G and 4G, there was previous attempts to implement private networks over the top of them or independently from them, and both of those failed. So neither of those took off. And at this point, I don't actually see that there's, there is more of a case for 5G, for private 5G, but I don't know if it's at scale. Like, are enough customers buying it to make that work? So, oh, and just to make it worse, Drew, 6G is on the way. The 3GPP, which is the forum that manages the 6G standard, is heavily promoting 6G and the features that are going into it, even though it's mm -hmm. not going to be here till 2030. Hey, right? uh, it's never too early to start hyping things up. That's, that's right. That's how it goes. So if, if you're a telco and you're looking at 5G and deciding what to do, and then all of a sudden the, the vendors who are trying to sell it to you are suddenly on the left hand saying 5G is the thing, you definitely need to spend money today on 5G. But on the other hand saying, let's sit down and have a planning call about for 6G. That's not a, that's not a good look, right? Anyway, I don't, it's possible the telcos, you know, bought into their own hype around 5G uh, and it just didn't materialize and maybe they'll learn their lesson this time, but uh, for 6G, probably not. Yeah, I, I think that's a mistake to start marketing too heavily. Huawei is particularly big on this, but uh, this SK Telecom white paper that they published is quite substantial. It's 56 pages long. It's good reading and they go into a lot of reading to sort of say, yeah, 5G didn't promise. We're very looking forward to 6G, but we not convinced that it's the way forward there's something wrong here and we don't actually know what's wrong and we're not finding our way forward which is a bit of an indictment on the whole telco industry who is supposed to be like these titans anyway whatever yeah <laughs> enough beating up on the telcos enough beating up on the telcos yes <laughs> all right uh, two stories before we wrap first cisco reported its fourth quarter and full year financial results for the quarter cisco had uh 15.2 billion in revenue up 16 percent year over year and 4 billion in net income up 41 percent versus last year uh, for the quarter product revenue was driven by cisco's core networking business with revenues up 33 percent Collaboration was down 12%. Security was flat. Uh, for the full year, Cisco had revenues of $57 billion, up 11%, and net income of $12.6 billion, up 7%. Uh, Cisco mm -hmm. says it's making progress on the transformation of its business model to rely on subscriptions and recurring revenues. For example, its software subscription revenues are up 20% year over year. Mm. So this is the COVID dividend still. So Cisco had a massive yes. backlog of product You know, in the COVID times where vendors and enterprises ordered equipment, and they're still just shipping a lot of that now. And that is what these numbers show. So this is, from the best that I can tell from the analysts 
that I read, they said that this is expected to be a short-term spike and Cisco is still growing at a slow, steady 2 to 4%. So this isn't Cisco doing particularly excellently. They're just clearing the backlog of what's happening. They've still got very strong sales in the campus and branch networking market. This is notable. Um, they're saying uh, somebody did the numbers here and they said it's a 33% growth in secure agile networks, which is what Cisco says is the campus, which means they're not doing very well in the data center or in the cloud so much. So that could be a worry if you're that sort of person. If you look at that and say, why is Cisco not winning in the data center? Maybe there's something there. But I mean, that is really significant that Cisco is continuing to dominate in the campus area. Its security business continues with low or zero growth. So in this quarter, its security business had zero growth. And if you compare that, say, with Palo Alto, who grew at 25% or 40 net, that only grew at 20%, slightly came in up on the, under the market. It's not a good comparison because Palo Alto also includes security and campus, but mostly campus. If Cisco's security business grew like Palo Alto or Fortinet, it would be significantly larger. So Cisco's right. got, so you know, that's not a perfect story there. I also want to note in the last two weeks, I've seen stories about activist investors taking possible positions in Cisco stock. So some of the usual names that you associate with active investments, there's an increasing sort of, I see an article much more regularly now saying, Cisco is stale and the management is boring and blah, 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 you know, the usual sorts of stuff and desperately needs an overhaul from top to bottom to revitalize the company and finally get some growth going because it's still largely flat over the last 10 years. But it is sitting on $17 billion worth of annualized recurring revenue. So for the next 12 months, if it sells nothing, does nothing, it will have $17 billion worth of revenue because that's locked in through licensing and software subscriptions. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And that continues to grow. The the markets, of course, love that because Cisco's got, you know, out of the fifty eight billion that it says, you know, made this year, if it does the same amount next year, it's going to walk into that with thirty or forty percent of that sold. So, you uh -huh. know, that's a great story. But uh, so yeah, not bad. I think it's good to see that Cisco's doing well for a change and they're executing. But there are certainly questions about uh, there's increasing sort of things. You know, Cisco is a slow growth, steady as it goes, shock, and its growth is limited. And what it seems to be doing, taking on less customers, but selling the products at higher prices. And that's basically, I, there's nothing in these numbers which don't suggest that to me. It's, it's reducing its, its, its sales numbers, its customer numbers, like purging itself of the small customers that are high cost, don't really have sufficient scale that Cisco doesn't want and pushing them out to other companies to have. Yeah. If you look at the guidance for the next quarter and the next fiscal year, it's basically flat, uh, which I think lines up with what you're hearing and I'm mm. hearing from analysts that this is essentially a sugar high uh, based on filling backlog orders that uh, came in during uh, COVID and supply chain constraints. Uh, and so as those back orders, get, backlog gets cleared out, uh, there's no real new demand to replace it. So 2024 is is, is going to be flat. Um, but as you said, Cisco's rejiggering how it does business uh, so that it's essentially banking most of its money on recurring revenue anyway, so it will continue to chug along uh, steady as she goes. Mm. Very little growth, but plenty of profit. Yeah, and Cisco told investors we expect, you know, we will continue to get inc incremental profit leverage from an increased mix of software as well as some additional operating leverage. In other words, it's going to increase its profit margin significantly. It's already back to 65.9% from a low around the 60% mark. So it's just making more profit than it was before. And the only way you can do that is by shedding costs. That's headcount, uh, working on your supply chain, don't think there's much that they could do there. Um, but the other one is they could just increase their prices and get rid of the customers that cost them a lot of money. Yeah. 
All right, last story for the day. NVIDIA also reported financial results for its second fiscal quarter of 2024, and those results are extravagant. The company had revenues of $13.5 billion, up 101% from last year. The company also had net income of $6.2 billion, up 843% year over year. GPU, 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 GPU. <laughs> I mean, this is. Ex- I'm pretty sure anybody who's in the industry, like... Let's just say that uh, in October 22, NVIDIA's share price was $115. Today, it is $470. Wow. So this is a company <laughs> that basically managed to corner the AI market, and mm-hmm. it's cont- executing on it. More importantly, not only has it captured the zeitgeist, and but it is providing all of the chips that ChatGPT and all of those companies, and everybody wants to at least do some. And as I said before, really, the only other competitor is AMD, but AMD hasn't had a good track record with the software that sits on top of the chips. What NVIDIA's key business realization is that you have to control the software that sits on top of the chip to make it work. And that was Intel's business model for a very long period of time, by the way. Mm -hmm. If you remember rightly, they would work with Windows to make sure Windows worked on Intel CPUs. They would work with Linux to make sure that Linux worked on it. And and they've invested huge amounts of money in Linux to make sure it's... that Intel CPUs are well, you know, to keep control of that. And uh, NVIDIA has taken that model to to heart. They've built a massive moat around their GPUs with their open source SDKs, you know, for Python and, and all the languages to do AI with. Um, so it's hard to imagine that they can't keep going up. Um, there's a bunch of people who think that they're going to continue to grow. And there's a lot of people saying they've already reached highs. How can they continue to grow from here? Uh, I can't make a prediction here, but there's no reason to believe that NVIDIA's position can't continue for the foreseeable future unless we see competitors come out and suddenly say, you know what, we should be, you know, is there, there's got to be, there's so much money here, how can we not compete in this market? Absolutely. Yes, that's what I would be thinking if I was AMD or some other chip maker, that it's time to get in. Yeah, uh, it would have been Intel, but, you know, they're in financial <laughs> trouble, so they don't really have the money to, you know, invest in, you know, breaking right. into this market. So it's got to be somebody else. Yeah. I saw somewhere, uh, someone said this on the internet. I can't remember who it was, so apologies. I can't give credit, but it's a great saying. Uh, it's an AI gold rush and NVIDIA is selling shovels. So well done to <laughs> NVIDIA. And they're not just shelling shovels, they're selling the land. <laughs> <laughs> selling mining rights, yes. And they're also taking a percentage of the gold that comes out of the ground, <laughs> and they're also helping you sell it. You know, They'll, they'll right. buy your gold from you. Yeah, the whole yeah, company full stack. down. The whole full full stack. stack, yeah. At every level, they've got a got their hand in the in the pipe. Yep. All right, that wraps up our news portion. Stay tuned for our sponsored TechBytes conversation. We're talking with StackPath. That's a customer of CatchPoint to talk about uh, how StackPath is doing digital experience management. That's coming right up. Today on the TechBytes podcast, we're talking about monitoring network and application performance. Our sponsor is CatchPoint, but instead of hearing from CatchPoint directly, they've sent a customer to talk about how they're using CatchPoint in production. And this includes real-time BGP monitoring, CatchPoint's observability network that lets you test networks and applications from multiple vantage points, and instant tests when you need immediate data. Our guest is Sonny Shah. He is Senior Director of Platform Engineering at StackPath. Uh, Sonny, welcome to the podcast. And can you give us a quick overview of, of StackPath and, and what you do and then why you need a CatchPoint's uh, network and application observability? Yeah, or a cloud computing platform built at the internet's edge. We are closer to the sources and destinations of data than the traditional hyperscalers. Key differentiators for our platforms are workloads and hosting workloads for when milliseconds matter. Let me just try and understand this. I would Sometimes I think of what you're doing as a content delivery network, but you're not, because now what you're doing is hosting virtual machines and containers 
and and software services right out at the edge of the network. So it's not just content delivery is one of the things that you do and caching and all that type of stuff. This is the much more of this edge edge platform idea that we're seeing many vendors push towards. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, you know, mm. the key component in a lot of use cases that our customers have starting to evolve are truly, mm. you know, revolutionary, right? So we have a customer that is a a key web3 platform provider and they were looking for um an ecosystem um of sort of infrastructure that is performant that is you know built to scale and then you know they came to us and they said hey yeah we would like to consider stackpath to solve these business problems and we want to put containers at the edge of the network we're going to in- instead of you know pulling all the traffic back to some data center in central america you know central northern america where why not run it in containers at the edge and do work at the edge of the network and then just send the combined data off to the core that's exactly right so the challenge with that is that now you've got this enormous complexity. You've got the virtual machines everywhere. You've got services all over the place. You've got the internet over the internet. You've got users on all sorts of things. And they're depending on your service. So the challenge here is that you've gone and talked to Catchpoint about getting visibility into what's happening. So what what are the elements of the Catchpoint platform that you're using? So Catchpoint is, you know, what I would call is one of the key tools in our Swiss army knife of in a bag of observability tools, right? You can imagine for someone like us with 80 edge locations and 45 markets, we're truly, truly a global platform. We've been around, you know, for over nine years. So we've got a very, you know, large customer base that that counts on us. And mm-hmm. the challenge that we have always faced is, you know, you'll you'll invariably get that call, you know, through the support people. And yeah. they'll say, I've got an irate customer on the phone and they're saying, well, it's you, StackPat. You guys are causing the application slowdown or, mm. you know, your, your, you know, XYZ region uh, in this particular, um, you know, country is mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. the contributor to all of my performance woes, right? So we have to deploy very quickly um, a set of tools to, you know, sort of objectively diagnose the problem and have an intelligent conversation with the customer um, where we can, you know, clearly show them that, no, it's not really us, but there's like one autonomous system number in Brazil, right? That's really, really the the contributing factor. And so- So this is this this idea of monitoring BGP. That's right. And you need to be able to look at BGP, but you also need to combine it with other tools, right? Because if the first signal that something's wrong is the BGP, table changes and a particular source IP address, you know, or source range starts to have packet loss or complete outage. That's one thing, but it's really about if you're going to use tools like Catchpoint, you're actually looking to correlate against other data points as well. You've got to be looking for DNS. You've got to be looking for BGP changes. You've got to be looking for, you know, is it packet loss? Is it total packet loss? Is it a brownout? It's not as simple as just saying, oh, the BGP table's gone. It's actually quite complex and, and sophisticated. Yeah, that's exactly right. And a lot of times our customers will actually work with us, right? So some of our customers have kind of their own, you know, sophisticated APM stack that they're using mm. to monitor their application. So they'll make available, you know, some of that telemetry. We actually have one customer where we bring in, you know, their, I wouldn't call it real time, but almost near real time telemetry into our our performance monitoring platform that is, you know, built internally. Because, you know, hey, the reason, one of the reasons for that is that that customer, while they appreciate and value, you know, kind of a robust performance monitoring stack, uh, but they understand the limitations of that. Everybody mm. talks about 
you know, sort of blind spots, right? Because, I mean, unless you're monitoring the whole internet and everything that's out there, there's <laughs> there's going to be blind spots that you just don't know, right? So one of the things that we have done is bring in, you know, some of those customer APM telemetry into kind of our, our own integrated network, you know, marry that with the data we're getting from Catchpoint, marry that with the data that we're getting from other special, you know, purpose tools that we have built and, and mm-hmm. integrated into our stack. And that, you know, begins to paint a picture and you talk about, you know, cost savings. I mean, if you think about, you know, observability back in the days, I kind of came through, you know, the old days of, you know, running NetView and OpenView and, you know, yeah. getting, getting all those MIBs deployed and compiled. Yeah, but, that, right? but that was, that's only uh, monitoring. We've gone so much more further than that because it's now, I often talk about a thing called the illities observability, visibility, monitorability, you know, all of those types of terms that we use for all of that. And we need to get reliability out of that. And we need, you know, configurability is also a key part of all that aspect. But StackPath is using Catchpoint to do the BGP monitoring, but it's also because Catchpoint's doing synthetic testing as well. They've got agents all over the world monitoring the internet so that you can see, you know, are my containers working correctly? And I hear you say that you're actually integrating Catchpoint. So you're actually integrating their software into your software? We're bringing in telemetry from their software right. into into our software. Now, we've got a use case that is not quite you know, ready yet. Um, one of the things that we're looking at actually deploying is um, a Catchpoint probe mm-hmm. right deep into our infrastructure stack, right? And right. so yeah. uh, Catchpoint calls it a private node versus the public nodes that you see kind of on their website where you know you can see a whole bunch of bubbles that shows how 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 diverse their yeah. geographic network is, right? So mm-hmm. w- one of the things that's going to help us do is now, you know, if you think about outside in uh, observability problem, having a catch point node embedded into our infrastructure stack will then help us, you know, bring in telemetry that we never had, right? Uh, up right. Until so that now. would combine with the user experience. So what Correct. the user's actually seeing there out at the edge, and then you'd be able to then what get to mean time to innocence gets faster because then you know whether it's the server side or the client side or the network because there's three aspects in there. That's exactly correct. Yeah. So it's really about that, you know, I, I think actually what you're telling me here is the whole thing is about mean time to innocence. The You've got to be able to say um, it's not us, it's somebody else and be right, like then you're innocent. But if it is you, you need to get there as quickly as possible so that you can then react so that your customers who will probably have no idea what you're doing and very limited visibility into what you're doing in a certain way. Like they don't, it's not like you're a server and you put a container in and you could see it, right? You, you could touch it. This is a very different environment. That's it. Yeah. And you said it really well, right? A lot yeah. of those conversations are really about, you know, not only diagnosing and identifying how, you know, where the fault is, but if it is, you know, indeed within our, our, our infrastructure, which happens, you know, sometimes then just, you know, act on it right away rather than thinking about maybe some external problem that's causing it. Right. So you need that mean time to innocence if it's not you, but you also need to know very specifically where a problem is to get that mean time to repair if it is you, because either way, you want to make sure your customers are happy with the performance they're getting. That is correct. Hmm. So you mentioned, you know, you're, uh, you've got locations around the world, which means your observability platform also has to be global. Do they have, you know, internet and network probes in places you need them? 
for the most part, most of the geographies that what we have seen, um, they either have equal or in some cases, you know, better coverage only because of the use cases that they serve, right? Because StackPath, we do not want to be in every market, right? Mm -hmm. Our goal is to be in strategic locations where workloads that are latency sensitive, um, you know, so denser markets, that's, those those are kind of our target locations. Uh, but we, we found Catchpoint to, you know, have a truly global network where every place that we needed them, they're part of it, right? And the other thing interesting that I mentioned earlier is uh, the private node concept. It's really unique because it, it helps us deploy, like, let's say, you know, Catchpoint has a roadmap to get into certain locations. Like we just had a an India expansion a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And while Catchpoint has, you know, several locations in India, there were a few locations in India where we needed, you know, like a like a closer, closer presence. So yeah. Yeah. in those cases, the the private node is a perfect use case where we can just go ahead and get started because our you know go-to-market strategy it requires us to be there up and running pretty quickly. So Catchpoint can just provide you a software probe essentially that you can install Correct. in the location where you're at and get that, you know, very granular visibility or observability into those the local conditions. Hmm. Exactly. And then the nice thing is because it's all just integrated part of the Catchpoint performance network, we can just deploy it and you start using right away. Like there's yeah. no delay other than the initial operational. Um, yeah. So know, this yeah. is not a this is not an agent driven technology. Uh, Catchpoint has a network, a global network of um, instances where it gathers data from various points. Right. And but they're not agents that me as the customer, I don't have to go out to all my workstations and install these. It's not that type of solution. You're correct. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I think it is at a heart, a purely uh, infrastructure monitoring play. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. if you're getting into, you know, deep, deeper um, application specific, like New Relics of the World, for example, we haven't really found that to be, you know, kind of a deeper use case for us. What about that. time? One of the one of the yeah. challenges that I've seen, you know, from these tools is that sometimes they do like a 15 minute or a 30 minute roll up. They really don't see what's happening until well after the event has actually passed. Is Catchpoint one of the companies that's really advanced this and getting closer to real-time tracking of what's happening? They're certainly, you know, evolving to be that, right? Mm. So if you talk about BGP monitoring, it is real-time. Like there is no delay. There is no five-minute, 15-minute delay. It is truly mm. real-time. So depending upon the use case that you're looking at now, you know, sometimes you can build a synthetic test where you may actually, you know, not want to react real time only because the problem hasn't really manifested itself, right? As part of the, that's, the test. That's so, so hard. Yeah. How, how, how do you do that in real time? Like, <laughs> how do you notice that the BGP table changed this far away, but in real time, deliver it to the monitoring system and to the people watching, like to the engineers sitting in front of the system going like, oh, this BGP just went out. To do that in real time is actually quite slick, I think. Uh, Sonny, it sounds like, you know, a lot of your customers are very, or have applications that are very latency sensitive. Have you ever used, you know, sort of telemetry you've already got on hand to demonstrate to them, like, yes, we we know we can meet your use cases and here's why? Uh, yes, yes. A lot of our customers have access to, you know, sort of a, a real-time view, if you will, or near real-time view, if you will, in this particular, you know, situation, mm-hmm. like the customer that I mentioned earlier, that is really big into the Web3 space, you know, for them having access to the telemetry to actually then make decisions real time in, you know, operationally from their perspective, like they've got a sophisticated operations team that is, you know, also monitoring the health of the everything about the infrastructure stack. 
Uh, so layer four and about, they're actually bringing in telemetry from our infrastructure into their operational platforms and then making you know key decisions, typically around auto scaling and such. So the, you'll share telemetry you've gathered from Catchpoint with customers because they can use it on their end to make adjustments to their application stack? Well, it's not Catchpoint specific. It is really stack path telemetry, but it mm-hmm. can have data that we would mine and anonymize mm-hmm. from the Catchpoint systems. And I, I assume allowing them to have that visibility sort of helps with your credibility. Like, yeah, we, we sort of trust the stack path folks because they're sharing this data with us. Well, and that's exactly right. And a lot of times, like, you know, most infrastructure providers shy away from sharing <laughs> sort of hearing <laughs> their internal dirty laundry, if you will, through right, a real time right. data feed. But, yeah. uh, you know, for the customers who actually appreciate having, you know, something like that, they truly, truly, truly love it. Now, you know, it's not for every use case because there's there it requires a specific setup on customer side and not a lot of them are, you know, really des- their systems are not designed to essentially drink from the firehose, if you will, right? So right. it does require specific components, you know, lock streaming and such. But for the most part, the ones who actually appreciate it, um, they just truly really love it. And to be honest, I mean, sometimes transparency is a key. You know, sometimes the telemetry would show an issue with the stack path, you know, server or 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 some other you know, portion of our infrastructure that just is the contributing factor. And that's perfectly okay. We'll we'll talk to the customer and we'll rectify the issue and we'll we'll share the root cause and just say, hey, these are the measures that we have taken so that you're not impacted in the future. I mean, frankly, I think if I was a customer, knowing that I had uh, a vendor I was working with, it was like, yep, that's our bad and we're going to fix it. It's a lot better than just having to fight with someone over and over to try to prove. Uh, I think people are accepting of mistakes if you're then quick to fix it. You bet. Having data and showing that, you know, right. oh, this there's been a BGP flap in, in Brazil. Let's pick on Brazil because we already used the name, you know, like showing that there's a BGP flap in Brazil and that that's, there's a massive outage across the board convinces customers it's not stack path, mean time to innocence type of thing. And that's, and that's, the, that's the key. That's what you want. That's exactly right. All right. Well, that does wrap up the time we have. Uh, Sonny, thanks for being here. If folks are interested in learning more about stack path, uh, where can they visit you? You know, they can just find us on uh, www.stackpath.com. And remember, latency matters. So, you know, come find us. <laughs> right. That's stackpath.com. <laughs> we'll have that link in the show notes. And also, thank you very much to Catchpoint for being a sponsor. If you want to learn more about Catchpoint and their observability platform, go to catchpoint.com slash packet pushers. That's catchpoint.com slash packet pushers. And once again, uh, thanks, Sonny, for joining us. And thanks to Catchpoint for being a sponsor. As always, thank you for being a listener. The Packet Pushers have a library of nerdy technical podcasts. You can find all of that and more at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.